Welcome to the Firehouse Salon. My name is Sarah Leff Gossage and I'm here with Ashley. Hello, hello. And for those that have listened before, or if you're new to the party, uh, this podcast is exploring the world of Howard Luck Gossage and the extraordinary cast of characters that he brought together in his firehouse tucked in the hills of North Beach, San Francisco in the 60s. Great. So in this edition, Sarah, we're going to start with what I think is probably Howard and Jerry Mander's most impactful ad campaign, which was an ad which ran with the headline of Now Only You Can Stop the Grand Canyon From Being Flooded for Profit. So do you want to give a bit of context on this ad and and what it did? What was so brilliant about it and truly revolutionary was that it was the first time an ad ever had tariffs where you could write your local representatives and Congress. It was the introduction of direct action. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time it had ever happened, which is extraordinary now when you look back, because now every political campaign or every cause, it's all about direct action. Yeah, And he did it in this analog time when you had to literally cut it out, put it in an envelope and post it. Yeah, And I guess Congress within a week was flooded with letters from constituents. I think Howard said, this is one of the noisiest things that I was ever involved in. That's, by the way, the intention of this podcast over the radio show is there is so much material that we weren't able to get into on that show because we had a very specific time limit. So when Sarah and I have finished this introduction, we're going to share with you lovely listeners a number of pieces of content. One of them is the whole of the story of Howard telling it himself. And the other is a much longer exploration of what led to Grand Canyon. So Sarah, you and I felt honoured and surprised because Ken Brower, David Brower's son, and you and I, and Megs, I think, went on a road trip to Grand Canyon. And... I don't think even Ken talked about it that much, but he said, we've just got to stop somewhere on the way. And he took us to Lake Powell. And we went to this place. It felt a bit weird, to be honest, this kind of weird, uncomfortable feeling standing there by this lake. And then we got out of the car and then we sat up the camera and Ken started talking. And basically revealed that this was Glen Canyon sitting underneath this lake. This is one canyon down from Grand Canyon and the fight to try and stop this canyon from being flooded, that David Brower had felt that he'd failed, that these beautiful canyons, as Ken says in the in the audio you're going to hear, some of the most beautiful canyons in the States, full of Indian drawings and just historical... Pictographs. Pictographs, and yeah. It, it, it's an archaeological site. Yeah. and the, Sacred the, to Native Americans. This obsession with dam building that the government had which Ken talks about, that was making work. It was keeping people employed. It was going back to the New Deal. Is it the New Deal? And also the thing about dams is a lot of the water that evaporates. So yeah. it's you're not even conserving water Yeah, yeah the way then, that you think that you are. Where we were filming Ken, there was like a sloped concrete road, mm-hmm. I guess, to get the boats into the water. The party boats into the water. Yeah, and but it, it was like 100 metres long. And you're like, why is that so long? And then Ken said, because all the water's evaporated. Like you, he said, look around the mountains and you could see this line yeah. where yeah. like over the last however many years, just this water's evaporating. So Ken essentially 
revealed to us that it was Glen Canyon that that drove David to really fight against what was planned in Grand Canyon. I think that's a, a good introduction, Sarah. What we're going to play is an excerpt of what was intended to be part of a feature documentary where Ken is going to introduce what drove his father, what led to the Grand Canyon, and to go into that story in a bit more detail. The trouble with conservation, like a lot of other things that do good in the world, is that people who are interested in, in good causes will oftentimes be so intense about it that you feel absolutely guilty. You feel guilty all the time, you know, because you're not doing something. And uh, so, you will, so you'll shun them because a person doesn't like to feel guilty, you know, about redwood trees, for instance. There aren't very many redwood trees left, and every time I read about something about redwood trees, some group trying to protect the redwood trees, these enormous trees, 3,000 years old, I felt, I felt guilty because I was sure they expected me to fling my naked body up against the trunk and keep them from sawing it down. You know, I can't do that with every tree. <laughs> So when they came to us for counsel, I happened to mention this to them and said, what you've got to do is to give people recourse. You've got to give them something they can do so they don't feel guilty and therefore hate you for making them feel guilty. Millions beat paths to this one-time wilderness along the Colorado River to picnic, go boating, swim, fish, and enjoy these important outdoor reclamation products. This is Lake Powell. In the environmental community, we call this Lake Fowl, and we, or we call it Lake Powell because it's really a reservoir. It's one of the biggest environmental disasters of the 20th century. From the canyon rim, the scene appears to have little activity an army of workmen virtually hidden in the Great Canyon. The United States went on a binge of dam building, and other parts of the world, a tremendous number of dams were built that were not needed. This dam behind me evaporates more water than it saves. It's a, it's a 188 mile long lake in the middle of the desert. Underneath those waters are some of the most beautiful canyons that ever existed, the most beautiful canyons in the world. I was there when, as a kid. There was red rock above, green below, winding into the desert. You could spend a whole day in each of these canyons and then come back down again. It would take a whole day. There were dozens of them. Each one was unique. Each had its own spirit. There were Anasazi ruins in these canyons that are under those waters. There are pictographs that the native uh, Navajos and Anasazi, the ancient ones, made in these canyons. There was a desperate attempt when the dam began to flood this, uh, this canyon to, to rescue these sites. They couldn't catch them all. There were so many. This is the tragedy that really animated my father's feelings about the fight for Grand Canyon. He felt responsible for this tragedy. He thought if he'd worked harder, he could have prevented what happened in this lake. He could have prevented the dam that, that ruined this place. And I think that was the driving force uh, behind the energy he put into trying to stop the same thing from happening in Grand Canyon. Now only you can save Grand Canyon from being flooded for profit. 
was a huge influx of membership in the Sierra Club. I forget the number, but it almost doubled in three years after the Grand Canyon campaign and Howard Gossage ads. It almost doubled the membership of the Sierra Club. It brought the Sierra Club to national attention in a way it had never been brought before. So, so these ads in so many ways were key. To many people, absurd thing in the world of thinking one of the great wonders of the world, uh, the Grand Canyon, and filling it up so people could float on the top of it. I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, that is so comical almost when you think about it. Now, at the time, it was a very real possibility. I mean, that's a lot of water. That would have been a lot of goddamn water. No, but that's funny. That's funny stuff, though. I mean, I mean, I mean, I, it, there was humor to that what he was talking about. I remember you looked at that and you, you laughed your ass off, you know. And some people took it very seriously, you know. But uh, it just, it, you know, I, I, I remember saying, I think I, gee, I'd love to be out there, I'd take a swim in it, you know. I swam in the Grand Canyon, you know. It's like Jesus Christ walking on, swimming on, walking across the Grand Canyon, except that you would have swimming. You know? What to do? Letters and wires are effective, and so are the forms at write once you have signed them and mailed them. You will notice that there is also one in the box below to the Sierra Club. That's us. Remember, with all the complexities of Washington politics and Arizona politics and the ins and outs of committees and procedures, there is only one simple, incredible issue here. This time, it's the Grand Canyon they want to flood. The Grand Canyon. I believe it was Stuart Udall, who was the Secretary of the Interior, said that those ads transformed the uh, conservation movement into an activist environmental movement. And then here's a speech that my father gave. I love that he refers to it as it made a lot of noise when it actually was like this game changer. <laughs> The Internal Revenue Service, the one who collects all our income taxes in the United States, delivered a registered letter to the Sierra Club depriving them of their tax-exempt status. That meant that any contributions which you gave to the Sierra Club, you could no longer take off of your income tax. Well, did that ever make noise? Uh, it was the noisiest thing I've been connected with, except for, I'm also an editor of a magazine called Ramparts. When we exposed the CIA, that, that made a lot of noise in the front page of the New York Times, too. But this one, what it effectively did was to say the Internal Revenue Service is against it, they, is, is against the Sierra Club, and this ad, therefore, you know, all right-minded citizens grabbed hands and were for it. The bill was defeated in Congress the next week. It never even got to the floor. It was one of the greatest propaganda tri uh, victories I ever saw because it happened so suddenly. But then you can't count on the Internal Revenue Service attacking you every time. You know, you have to... <laughs> it's powerful stuff that they were doing in the 60s. This was the first direct action campaigning. After this, you've got Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, and it kickstarts the environmental movement. But I'm sitting here on a warm day in, in England and reading 
newspapers about 42 degrees in Spain where I live and I guess I feel frustration that despite this kind of action we haven't solved the problem so am I getting excited about this campaign and the impact it had but missing the bigger picture that isn't it a bit pointless this kind of stuff it's hard to be alive during a mass extinction event And that's basically where we are. I live in California and now we have summer, fall, wildfire season is actually like a weather season. Yeah. That from October to December, that's, it's a whole, we have a, we've created new seasons. It's incredibly frustrating and disheartening and we both have children and it's not like we haven't known about this since the 60s, even before with Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's book, The Powers of Greed. In the radio show, at the end of it, it's got this positive note, despite the fact of all the challenges that we face. And so Mm -hmm. I guess my feeling is that we're living in this state of change and the whole debate that's been going on about is it happening has basically covered up the fact of it's already happened. And and so it can feel completely pointless and overwhelming and that you withdraw into the small things in your life that are controllable and make you happy and ignore the bigger picture, but it's becoming harder and harder to ignore. And I think we talked about this kind of idea that I heard in the environmental movement about the ripples you make that change actually starts with an individual and an individual in fact I read something the other day I'm going to try and bring it up I got recommended this book that's called if there was one thing it's one of the founders Mm -hmm. of innocent smoothies I don't know if that's the thing in the states it's quite a big thing here in the UK and he basically started this idea which was whenever he'd meet someone interesting or who'd been through amazing experiences he would ask them if there was one lesson one learning that you would pass on from your life what would it be where was it sorry oh here we go this was i might say this wrong but it's marina abramovich isn't it the artist oh yeah the the performance artist so yeah in this book marina abramovich said with many people there is a sense that the world is falling apart and it creates a feeling of just giving up And that inertia is the real danger to society. People have to realise we can create change by changing ourselves. And so I still feel that the lesson from Howard and what he was doing is they did have impact. They stopped the Grand Canyon from being flooded. Then they moved on to Dinosaur National Park. They moved on to Redwood Trees. They moved on. It's a constant fight. But really what I believe is change comes from the individual. If each individual made a smaller change, that rippled out into their community. That I still have faith. I've got children or a child. So I think... Uh, I have faith. The piece that I would love it... I, I, I wish my father was here to talk to us about or to... I would love his insight is that now even the nature of truth is subjective. Mm. And I don't know how you solve problems or create collective action if we can't all agree on basic reality, on truth, and what is true. I think the greatest impediment now to solving any of our big problems 
and yeah, now with the introduction of AI yeah. and you don't know what's anything, how do you know what is real, what is true, and what isn't? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I had this chat last night. I'm, I have a bit more faith in this as well, that I believe within a year, you won't be, I mean, it's already the case with disinformation, but in terms of photographs and videos and audio and what you read, you won't be able to trust anything you read online, nothing. That sense of truth and online, I just think fatally falls apart. So then if it does push even further than it has with advertising manipulation, etc. Mm -hmm. Any sane person, and I'm not saying this is everyone, but you, me, my friend I was talking to the other night, as a human being, we're looking for human connection. Mm -hmm. And so if I can't trust what I read, I think what I do is say, Sarah, what have you read recently? Like to actually go back to humanity and out of a digital world, looking for truth in the connections that we have and the people that are around us. And I think Jerry Fialka talked about this, that whereas what yeah. Howard and, and all of them were doing in the 60s was about coupons and people had to actually mm -hmm. take action. The digital yeah. world sh showed us this, the Arab Spring, it showed us this way that right. technology could be used to make a difference and then it flipped back on its head. Yeah. And almost it's become throwaway. It's so easy to do something on a, a change.org or whatever. And I think right. people need to actually that do... That it's become meaningless. Yeah, people need to do stuff in their yeah. community. And I think, again, I talked about this on the last episode about this road safety campaign where I live. And that is, as you said, changing the world. And yeah, the challenge is that it still has to be tackled on a big level as well as a small level. And it would be wonderful to have Howard and Jerry, because uh, that's an important Jerry, thing. Jerry, totally. With, with this is, is the importance of everyone that was there, not just your father. No, absolutely. And actually what you just said, it makes me feel a little bit more hopeful. <laughs> I don't mean to be so gloomy today and be such a Eeyore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The quote of Howard, the audio where he talks about in relationship to the environmental movement and how they just make you feel so guilty yeah. all the time that you don't want to do anything. There's part of, uh, he's absolutely right. And it's just infuriating because, yeah, we feel guilty and horrible. And though, so that creates stasis. Yeah. I wish I'd talked more to Jerry, for example, about yeah. his life and what he did, which in terms of impact, I would argue was probably more influential than what your dad did because he was working at it for years and years. I absolutely agree with you. You know, the inspiration came from your father, but he found yeah. Friends of the Earth and the campaigns that he did. But where he ended up was a book that I'm reading at the moment called The Capitalism Papers, where he basically said unless we advertising shouldn't exist tv is dangerous he would have said the same thing about ai i imagine but he essentially said unless we can get off the consumerist wheel the capitalist system it's inevitably going to use up the planet's resources and continue down the same path that we're on and that won't happen because no government would say we need to have less consumerism we need to have a lower gdp and so i wonder how people like him who've done such amazing stuff what resolution you came to seeing what's actually happening to the planet now that must be really hard 
to have yeah. been at the start of something and to have had impact and, done, and made that fight. Well, and he kept doing it until the very end. You have to have some optimism to keep fighting. Yes. For your whole life. People like that are rare and extraordinary. 